There is a mountain of scientific evidence about the climate crisis. And yet Christian individuals and congregations often flounder in responding. What does Christian faith have to do with creation? In this episode, Deborah Reinstra shares how individuals and communities might rally in response, not as an agenda separate from their faith, but deeply grounded in their Christian faith. Reinstra is professor of English at Calvin University, specializing in early British literature and creative writing. She's the author of numerous published essays, poems, and academic publications. She writes about spirituality, climate change, pop culture, the church, the arts, and higher education. Her recent book is titled Refugia Faith, Seeking Hidden Shelters, Ordinary Wonders, and the Healing of the Earth. Reinstra was raised in Michigan, where she now lives. The soil of the state is highlighted throughout her book. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Deb, thank you so much for talking with me today. Sherry, it's great to be here. What what exactly is refugia? Well, I can give you the official biological definition. Um, I found this definition in a scientific paper from 2020, um, and the definition comes from a literature review from 2012 by a guy named Gunnar Keppel. And it goes like this. Refugia are habitats that components of biodiversity retreat to, persist in, and can potentially expand from under changing environmental conditions. It's basically places where life survives in a crisis. And they're usually um, little pockets of life, and it could be survival from, say, a fire. Why do some trees survive and others don't? Or maybe it's an insect infestation. Why do some plants survive it and others don't? Or maybe it's um, a, a little pocket in a warming river that stays cool so the fish can still uh, spawn there. So many, many, many examples throughout nature. It's a resilience mechanism in nature. And, and eventually it just occurred to me that wouldn't that be a great metaphor for the church and for people of faith? Are, aren't we supposed to be the people who sort of find and tend to these places, these life-giving places out of which um, societies or cultures or, you know, spiritual communities are renewed even amid severe disturbance. So it just seemed like this powerful natural phenomenon that had implications for the way we think of ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't help but thinking also of places like Hiroshima, where they expected nothing to ever grow, you know, for a century. Um, And then this kind of miracle of like the first weeds taking root again. One of the beautiful things you do in your book is you situate yourself on the soil where you live. So can you situate us with you, whether that's your home in Grand Rapids or some of your experience? Um, You talk about sand dunes a lot. So can you set the stage for us geographically? Yeah. Um, Right. So one of the things I discovered is that I really connected once again with a childhood love of the lakeshore, which I hadn't really thought about, but I've, I've always been really deeply connected to West Michigan and felt guilty about that because I thought, oh, you're so parochial, you know? I mean, you should go off and see the world, which I've done a little bit of. But every time we've lived elsewhere, California, Iowa, New Jersey, London, I've missed home. And I thought there was something wrong with me. 
And then I realized, no, actually, human beings are supposed to be connected to place. And this idea of placenessness in modern life is actually an aberration. And so part of the project of Refugia Faith was purposely and intentionally connecting to place, to the indigenous history of of Michigan and the Adawa and the Potawatomi peoples and the Hopewell peoples before them who lived here and the history of settlement and the history of logging and mining in Michigan, uh, shipping, not things I would normally be interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I found learning about that history fascinating and also rather distressing because I thought, why haven't I known any of this? I have a really good education and yet none of this was being connected to where I live was just not part of my education. And so I've had to educate myself. Um, And through that really rediscovered this love and connection to this place that I'm only, you know, third generation white settler here, but I think it's still appropriate to learn what indigenous people teach us, which is if you're going to live someplace, you better care for it and care about it and understand Mm -hmm. it and observe it. So I've just become a beginner in that, um, learning the names of plants and learning to recognize invasive species. And, you know, as Aldo Leopold says, the problem with ecological awareness is you start to live alone in a world of wounds. In other words, the Mm -hmm. minute you learn about things, you start to see the damage. Um, and, and that too, you know, could be a, a path to a kind of deep sadness and sorrow, which it is, but it, that knowledge is also helpful because then you can start to say, all right, well, what needs healing and what can I do to help? So that yeah. part has been also just kind of deeply meaningful. Yeah, that's great. And in addition to learning the land, there's also an economic history that's connected to how things have changed ecologically, yeah. um, which as educated as many of us are, um, it's not something that you move to a different state, go to school and learn about is the local history, the local economic history. Um, yeah. Right. Economics, bio- sociology, right. Everything. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, this is not just a, um, what started by reading books, uh, and learning about the climate crisis is also deeply a matter of faith for you. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So um, all all through this, I was, of course, surrounded by colleagues who were working hard to connect the crises that we live with right now to faith. That's what we do um, at Calvin University. Um, So that part came very naturally to me. But it was really when I learned about eco-theology, even that that was a thing, Mm-hmm. Um, and I love theology anyway. You know, I was sort of raised um, in this little reform tradition where we studied catechism starting in third grade. And um, at Calvin mm-hmm. University, we all kind of have to be theologians just to survive. So <laughs> yeah. um, and it's a good thing. I love theology because we have to. And so learning about eco-theology has been really exciting. But then to ask the question, all right, well, what does this all mean? for faith and faith life right now. And I began to understand and listen to people who were saying, yeah, this actually demands a somewhat different response from people of faith than our usual mode of operation. 
and um, started to read um, Pope Francis and Laudato Si and Mm -hmm. this call to love God and neighbor. That is the fundamental call of the Christian faith, love God and neighbor. These are the two greatest commandments. But to do that in a way that's particular to this time and to the situation that we are in, in this world. So um, I love the way that Reverend Jim Antall puts it. He's a UCC pastor who's been involved in climate work for decades. Um, He likes to think of addressing the climate crisis as our sort of communal vocation right now, Mm -hmm. the vocation of this generation. It's our way that we are called to love God and neighbor right now. Um, And it's easy to see, I think, well, maybe it's not easy to see. Um, I was going to say it's easy to see the environmental injustices, but I don't know that that's true. But perhaps the the best way into this is to recognize that if we're going to love our neighbors, we have to recognize how many of them are in distress from climate disturbance, Mm -hmm. people who live on coastlines, people whose farms are no longer productive, it's just been too dry, people whose livelihoods are threatened, people whose places have been destroyed by wildfire. Um, These are people who are suffering and people in the future who are going to suffer more unless we address these issues. So it is a matter of loving neighbors, but I would say maybe the the second easiest thing to recognize immediately is that caring for creation is a way of loving God, and that that demands something of us more than the kind of nice word stewardship, which is a lovely word, mm-hmm. but it's inadequate because for many reasons, but one of them is it sort of assumes that the status quo is okay. Like we just have to continue stewarding the land and the water in the way we have been. And that sort of means, well, using it nicely. That's not enough when we are dealing with a damaged earth. Hmm. So to recognize our communal vocation right now, um, as Pope Francis puts it, kind of calls for an ecological conversion we have to recognize that the status quo is not sustainable. What do you think has led to, you talked about, about stewardship and the, the Beyond Stewardship Project that you elbowed your way into in your words. Um, what, what do you think has led so many Christian communities and perhaps other communities of faith to, to avoid or ignore this, this crisis? Oh, it's such a complicated question. Um, We actually have some sort of sociological immediate answers in two recent surveys done by the Pew Research Center and PRRI. And one of the things they discover sort of right here, right now, is that American people of faith, and, and Christians in particular, they break it down into different faiths, but American people of faith are more influenced by their news source and their political commitments than they are by their faith communities. And both of those studies are very discouraging. (laughs) Um, And they kind of break it down to what news sources people listen to and what is and is not going on at their churches or faith communities. And one of the problems in a lot of faith communities is that people just aren't talking about the crisis 
or anything having to do with the natural world. Um, they're talking about other things. And unfortunately, this is especially true of white American evangelicals. So of all the faith groups, um, I'm sorry to say white American evangelicals are the least realistic about what's going on and are doing the least. Now, there are very important exceptions to that, and I'm grateful for them. I'm thinking of the Evangelical Environmental Network, which is working very hard and with a lot of savvy to address fellow white evangelicals. Um, but, you know, your mainline listeners might even be able to report that in their communities, there's just not a lot of talk about it either. It just varies from community to community. But I think, you know, there are so many deeper reasons for this, and we kind of have to go back maybe not to the dawn of time, but <laughs> to the Enlightenment. Um, uh -huh. I, I teach an environmental literature class, and we do a little bit of um, scripture study, and we do kind of a walk through through theological history just a little bit. And we get to the Enlightenment, and, you know, we kind of want to go, and this is where it all goes to crap. <laughs> which is a, <laughs> We're about to go off the rails, folks. Yeah, which is a terrible <laughs> reduction in generalization, of course, and I tell students that. But the the kind of deeper theological reasons and cultural and historical and sociological reasons for i would say american religious indifference to not just the climate crisis but to any sort of attention to creation care uh we can trace those things back to this sort of dualism that became exacerbated in the 18th century. And, you know, I'm a fan of the enlightenment. We could all use a little more reason. That's for sure. Enlightenment with a sort of fond nostalgia, but there was this, um, exacerbation, as I say, of separating the spiritual from the physical and material that occurred during the enlightenment. And this was, this is true in Christianity too. We can, we can see it. We can see it in the literature and the theology of that period. This mm -hmm. sense that the material world is uh, mechanistic and inert and just this sort of temporary stage on which the spiritual drama of redemption is played out. And I, yeah. I think we can maybe recognize that those, those ideas are latent in the scriptures, but I think they're countered in the scriptures by a real celebration of, of creation, which is foundationally orthodox. Mm -hmm. But in the Enlightenment, that dualism between spirit and matter uh, worsens. And, you know, we can ask a lot of reasons why, but I think, honestly, the reasons have to do with colonialism and industrialization. And this is really upsetting to my students when they when they start to realize that theological ideas are historically located and hmm. influenced and there's we would like them to be more pure oh, and abstract would. than that wouldn't we oh it's so upsetting right because we we want to imagine that christian orthodoxy came down from the clouds in you know the early church and it's always been a matter of like calibrating our purity <laughs> to that mm -hmm. first you know. yeah um <clears throat> yeah. It would be simpler but, that way. Wouldn't it? But we are all influenced by our times. That's just the way human culture is. And that includes theology. So there's a kind of handmaiden theological business that goes on um, in the 18th century through the 19th and, you know, indeed into today 
that allows our theology to support the efforts of colonialism and industrialization. If we separate faith from the business of living in this world and faith becomes over-spiritualized and in the United States too, I think, over-individualized, then we, <clears throat> we create a barrier between faith and our faith life and our faith thinking and <clears throat> everything that we're doing with other people and with the earth. And this is really handy if you want to be exploiting people and exploiting the earth. So mm -hmm. I, I think we just have to kind of have a literal come to Jesus moment here <laughs> about yeah. that dualism. And I, I hear this too um, from indigenous people who are also uh, Christian theologians like um, Randy Woodley mm -hmm. in his book, Shalom and the Community of Creation, who is just constantly saying dualism, dualism, dualism. That's what we have to get rid of. And so I, I think that kind of dualistic theological bent has led to a lot of other problems, um, a truncated soteriology, that is to say, we have a very narrow idea of what salvation is, what redemption is, it's about souls, it's about human souls, we forget mm -hmm. God's um, redemptive plans for all of creation, the renewal of all of creation, we don't quite know what to do with Romans 8 and the groaning of creation or Colossians 1 and the reconciliation of all things through Christ. We just, we are focused on souls going to heaven. Um, even if, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say on a quiz, yes, that that is the sum total of Christian redemption. Um, that's kind of how we operate in faith and practice. And that, of course, leads to a sort of bad eschatology, too. So our view of the yeah. end of things becomes, well, we're not quite sure, like disembodied souls in heaven. Like, how does that work? Or, um, yeah. you know, the sense of this creation as a kind of disposable temporary stage, the drama plays out, you strike the set, and then lo and behold, God creates a new creation. Like, what is this theater <laughs> about things burning up? And, you know, here's another thing that horrifies students. Some of those translations aren't quite right. So that mm. whole thing about, um, you know, the burning of, of the earth in First Peter, maybe it's Second Peter, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's all right. That's, yeah, that's not quite right. It's more like the revealing of the creation, the revealing of the redeemed creation. And even in Revelation, this idea of, the new creation, it's really the renewed creation. And it's, you know, kind of an issue between Greek ideas and words and English translations and the tradition of English translations. So all of these little elements have contributed to, uh, I think, a, a temptation to look away from the earth and to regard it as our pantry and our sewer as Joanna Macy says, mm -hmm. or um, Sally McFaig yeah. says, and to justify um, our Christian complicity with exploiting resources by calling it stewardship. So that yeah. was kind of a long way around back to stewardship. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, we have to, I think, recognize <clears throat> that these notions that have led to our practices that, you know, they sort of feed into each other, practice and theology feeds into each other, 
this is all coming from a long period of drift away from the concern in the scriptures for uh, the, the healing of the created world alongside the healing of people. Yeah, Deb, I'm interested in thinking about this kind of truncated understanding of what salvation is or um, the dualism that you that you name that like the body is ultimately something that we get to escape and the earth perhaps then is also something we simply get to escape and there's going to be some kind of grand uh, slate that gets wiped clean yeah, <laughs> and exactly. and the ultimate goal is to kind of uh, get through the physical life or the physical world and can you you mentioned a lot of scripture um, but of course the incarnation also just feels like this very real starting point for thinking about this anew. Can you talk about Jesus for a bit? <laughs> of course. Um, so I, I love the idea of the crash at Christmas time. And this, the crash was sort of invented, I guess, by St. Francis, which makes it. Is this the little nativity scene? Uh, that, right. The, Is that the crash? Yeah, this makes total sense. Right. The nativity scene with the animals and everything. Because it reminds us that the incarnation is a big affirmation of the material creation. This is not something that God, you know, slapped onto souls um, just as a kind of temporary thing. The creation is what God loves and wants to restore to its, uh, to the original dream for its harmony and its um, and it's flourishing and surviving. So the incarnation is a big yes to animals, to donkeys and oxen and sheep mm -hmm. and trees and grasses and mountains and hills and valleys. Um, and I think we lose that. We, we tend to think in Christian circles of the incarnation as this kind of errand that Jesus has to run, you know, like <laughs> yeah, Jesus is yeah. up in heaven, sitting around the throne. And actually I blame Milton for a lot of this. Sorry, Milton. I know you didn't mean it, but um, it's like this chore, this <laughs> chore that needs to be done. If you could hop to it. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. It'll be me. Jesus volunteers literally in book three of paradise lost, um, which, you know, there's some good theological reasoning behind that, but so errand boy Jesus comes down, tolerates flesh for a little while, and then zips up back to heaven. That's, once again, a kind of truncated orthodoxy. I, I realize that, you know, our theology is often subtle and paradoxical and hard to explain. So I get that. Um, but the Christmas season is a really good opportunity to reflect on the incarnation as a huge yes to the redemption of all creation. So I think I say in the book at one point, you know, Jesus comes for the donkeys too. <laughs> mm. And that can be a little bit yeah. upsetting to people because I don't mean by that, that, you know, donkeys need to be redeemed because they're sinful or something like that. That's not what I mean. We are the ones with moral responsibility and moral accountability but because we are kin with all of creation, our moral, our moral status affects all of creation. In other words, when humans are exploitative of each other, when they are violent, when they are cruel, all creation suffers. And you just have to look at 
say, the war in Ukraine to see that, or any war, or Mm -hmm. any extractive industry that is careless about uh, what they're doing, any uh, stressed place where there's environmental injustice, Cancer Alley in Louisiana, for example, Mm -hmm. where the exploitation of people and the earth has long gone hand in hand. Um, You just have to look at that to recognize that human moral responsibility has effects on all creation. So when Jesus comes to redeem and atone for that human sin, that affects the whole creation too. And we can celebrate that. That means that Jesus' coming is a mark that healing is on its way. This is the the, um, intervention of God in the created world to bring about this redemptive vision that we have in scripture and that is the source of our hope. So that, of course, you know, has implications for creation, for crucifixion and resurrection as well. Mm -hmm. Um, My friend Leah Shade has a beautiful section in her book called Creation Crisis Preaching, where she describes the crucifixion story um, in a way that draws out the and the role of the created world in that crucifixion story. There's a beautiful passage where she talks about Jesus in the tomb as Jesus going into the earth to bring the earth into this resurrection vision. And I I just think that's a marvelous insight. Yeah. And it seems to me in reclaiming um, kinship with say the donkey, um, you're pushing back against this very real, um, over-centering of humans in the story. Um, Not because humans, as you've said, are unimportant, but because they've become overly important in our own imagination. Is that fair? Yeah, I think human arrogance um, is probably one of our biggest theological problems. And once again, you know, there's, there's testimony in scripture that is beloved and treasured that we don't lose. Um, We are made in the image of God, right? We are uh, friends of Christ. One of my favorite passages is in John 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, I have called you friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are precious things and they should be held to. But we are so many, 8 billion people on this earth. We are so powerful that, um, you know, the temptation to arrogance is almost irresistible. And I realize yeah. this is this is not true of every person because so many people are still struggling to live into their dignity as children of God and as being made in the image of God because other people um, don't really recognize that as they should. So I understand that. But as a whole, we are so powerful um, that I think our, our call right now is to rediscover humility. And I think Mm. we rediscover that, um, primarily by listening to indigenous voices and the indigenous wisdom of kinship with the rest of creation. We are made of soil in Genesis 2. We are kin with, we're made on the same created day in Genesis 1. So that kinship with the rest of creation um, is definitely there in scripture. It's there in indigenous knowledge and it's in science too. So one of the exciting things for me in the last five years or so is observing this kind of convergence of wisdoms 
that's happening mm-hmm. right now. And Pope Francis talks about this in Laudato Si as well and says, listen, people, I'm writing this letter to everyone on earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. We all need to work together. We need all wisdoms, he says. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a wonderful insight. It's a very generous and wonderful insight but it's just true. And to see the convergence of wisdoms on this idea of our kinship with the rest of creation is very exciting. Some people, Christians, you know, get worried about, well, what about distinctiveness? And, and I think, I, I don't think we need to worry about losing that. I, I think that distinctiveness is kind of self-evident. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think we, we need to worry more about arrogance. Yeah. It's interesting you name drawing on indigenous wisdom. You also point um, when it comes to activism at people who are working for racial justice and kind of the tenacity of a certain kind of hope. Um, and those both seem really inspiring to you. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those of us who have been uh, able to live in privilege and indifference, if we are waking up now to this sense that actually, you know, this climate crisis thing, and actually the pandemic, actually the pandemic too, allowed us to remember that life is contingent and that our assumptions about security are maybe a little bit illusory. And it's time for those of us who are feeling that way to look to the wisdom of those for whom the world has been ending for hundreds of years, you know, mm, people who yeah. have learned resilience and a kind of clear-eyed, steely-eyed hope um, from many, many years of experience. And I see that in indigenous thinking and writing and wisdom and in Black American um, thinking and wisdom. And I, I think we need to sit at the feet of these people and acknowledge their long, long suffering and, you know, quiet ourselves and learn. So hope to me comes from perspective. It comes from the perspective of recognizing that the last century or so has been a kind of odd time in human history because the myth of progress has been so real and so powerful and really delivered for a lot of people. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not ungrateful. It looms for that large in the all. American dream, dentistry. like in our cultural imagination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think dentistry is fabulous and thank <laughs> you for antibiotics. You know, I, I'm not disparaging any of that. Um, but a perspective of the, all, the whole of human history and indeed the people in the scriptures who are often in despair and suffering and experiencing extreme disturbance. Right. And still, yeah calling out to God and putting their hope in God. Um, So that perspective is really helpful. Clarity is, I think, a source of hope. And that just means paying attention, um, learning more. And then from that comes determination. Um, I think hope is more an action than a feeling. And I'm not, Mm -hmm. that's not my wisdom. I've learned that from many other people. Um, And then, action and a feeling of agency, however small, um, hope comes from that, from actually doing things. I tell yeah, my students, you, you know, who are young and uh, really angry about the climate crisis and feel this real sense of betrayal, particularly by their faith communities, 
um, you know, they're the ones who are going to live on this earth through 2050 and beyond. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Those of us who are older might, might slip out before then, but they're angry and they're very anxious. And what I tell them is learn, know things. Don't just live in this sort of vague fog of anxiety, <laughs> get involved mm-hmm. and yeah. read stuff and learn and then you realize there's this whole amazing, I don't want to say army, this whole amazing community of people who are doing incredible work in all fields, everything from sculpture and visual art to mechanical engineering, to community organization, to urban gardening. Many of them are Christians, but so many are not. They're people of other faiths and they're people of no faith at all through whom I believe the Holy Spirit is working toward renewal. So to get involved with those people, even if you know everything we do isn't necessarily going to work. I mean, that's the thing about refugia too. They don't always work. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they just fail. But to have this sense of we have work to do, we have a communal vocation, and I'm going to find my lane, my skill set, my passions, And however small that is, uh, that's what I'm going to do. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. Our editorial and production team includes LaDonna Damon, Armand Banks, Madeline Paulhill, and Garrett Mistowski. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Even better, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thanks for listening.